Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to episode 11 of City Breaks Florence. We spent episode 10 in the Piazza della Signoria talking about the square itself, but we didn't actually get inside the palace which is there. Sometimes it's called the Signoria, sometimes it's called the Palazzo Vecchio. And today I'd like to put that right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the building, talk about some of the people connected with it, some of the main events which happened there, and then go on a mini tour of some of the most important rooms where there are all sorts of fascinating things to be learned about Florence and the city's history. It's massive, you could spend all day there, and as usual, I'm doing a little bit of an edited highlights, just the things which struck me as being the most interesting. The building itself is, I think, probably the second most easily recognised building in the whole of Florence after the cathedral. It dominates the square and it's got that very particular high tower that just seems to have Florence written all over it. It's been an important building for centuries and centuries and it's been through a number of names. It was known at one point as the Palazzo dei Priori, a name which I think refers to the elders of the city who met there. It was known also as the Palazzo della Signoria, The Signoria was in fact the name of the ruling council that was elected to govern the city and the building became called after them for a while. In the 17th century, when the ruling Medici family began to style themselves as dukes, then it was known for a time as the Palazzo Ducali, so the Duke's Palace. But actually, the name that's stuck for the longest and which is mainly used today is the term the Palazzo Vecchio, which actually means Old Palace. And that name dates from the days of Cosimo I. So you may remember I said a few episodes ago that Cosimo I, Duke Cosimo, and his Spanish wife Eleonora, and there I think they had seven or eight children at this point, decided to move out of their home, the Palazzo Medici Ricardo, because it wasn't really big enough anymore, and to move into the Signoria, this palace that we're talking about today. I think it was partly about looking for more space but it was almost also a statement of power because this was the building from which Florence was governed and um, Duke Cosimo was moving in as if to say I shall be in charge of all of this from now on and they were there for a number of years they had a number of more children and possibly I don't know decided that they didn't want to have the home and the office all in one building anyway for various reasons they decided to move the family out across the river to the Palazzo Pitti So Cosimo from then on would continue to work in the Signoria building, but he would live in the Palazzo Pitti. And so, of course, it became quite an obvious thing to call the palace that they'd left the Palazzo Vecchio, the old palace, because they'd moved into the new one. Duke Cosimo moved in in 1540. I've mentioned in previous episodes a number of moments from history prior to that date, which made the Signoria of importance. We talked about how it was the place where Cosimo de' Medici was imprisoned, for example. Uh, We talked about Savonarola being imprisoned there before his execution. And I'm sure that Duke Cosimo knew that he was moving in somewhere, which would really help to enhance his influence and make him seem all-powerful. First thing he did was have a complete overhaul of the building. He wanted it to be a fitting place as a palace, For him and his family, so he took on an architect, Vasari in fact, Giorgio Vasari, and Vasari spent approximately 20 years on this project, enlarging, refurbishing, redecorating, all sorts of things, and he was known to refer to the work as the, quote, politics of image. He perfectly understood that he wasn't just doing up an old building, he was creating a place for Duke Cosimo to be at the centre of everything. 
I'm pretty sure that the prestige angle was Cosimo's main reason for wanting to move in there, but to give him his due, he may well have been aware of the idea of a need for a place of safety for his family and for himself. His predecessor, Alessandro de' Medici, had been murdered after all, and Cosimo may well have felt that he and his family would be safer here. He certainly became very fond of the place, and even after he moved out and took the family to the more extensive accommodation in the Palazzo Pitti, of course the Palazzo Vecchio remained his office, um, and to keep a close connection between the two palaces, this was when he got Vasari to design the Vasari Corridor, so the covered walkway that leads from one palace to the other across the Arno and meant that Cosimo could get to work without getting wet. I think that was probably also a defence mechanism. He knew that he could go without having to meet anybody in the streets from palace to the other and feel protected. So the building has always played a key role in the governing of Florence and even today it's still the site of the city hall, although it's a museum as well. Quite a large part of it's open to the public and you can go round and learn all sorts of things about Florentine history. Historically speaking, the most significant thing about the building is the fact that it was the working home of the Signoria, so the council of people who were elected to rule the city. Florence was quite different from other cities in this respect. Naples had its king, Milan had a duke, but Florence decided it wanted something a lot more democratic than that, and that a council of people would be elected to govern the city. It wasn't complete democracy. In order to be in the running to be chosen, you had to be male, and you had to be over 30, and you had to prove that you were up to date with paying your taxes, but if you fulfilled all those criteria, then you were in fact eligible. A new signoria was elected every two months, and when that time came round, the bells would be rung, all the eligible citizens were invited by the bell ringing to come to the signoria square, and to watch a series of names being drawn out of sealed purses. These eight people then would be expected to abandon their families and their businesses and their normal everyday life and move into the Palazzo della Signoria for the two-month period. So they would live there, they would have all their meals provided, plenty of wine and nice food on offer, and they would be expected to take the decisions as to how the city was going to be governed for that two-month period. I think it possibly sounds slightly more democratic than it really actually was because there's plenty of evidence that on occasions only certain names made it into the sealed purses to be picked from and that there were all kinds of rivalries and plots and general shenanigans going on behind the scenes between the the well-off families who were all desperate to have themselves or at least second best option somebody who was on their side uh, elected to these influential posts. But nevertheless, it was a system of government that involved the citizens far more than was the case in many of the other Italian cities. There was one person said to be in charge of the Signoria, a sort of figurehead known as the Gonfaloniere. Various committees would be elected to do particular tasks. There was a staff of permanent officials, so I suppose the equivalent of the civil service, and the most famous person of all who was once part of that was one Niccolo Machiavelli, And on occasions when there was deemed to be a real crisis and they wanted to sort of spread the decision-making out a bit, then they would have something called a parlamento. So the bells would be rung. Any male living in the city over the age of 14 was invited to come to the square and then whatever it was would be discussed or sometimes voted upon. Perhaps the people would choose a balia, so a, a committee of people, to deal specifically with that problem. It was a curious mix, really, of the medieval and the really quite modern-sounding beginnings of government by democracy.
And today, when you go in, you can often be aware that there, there is today's city council business going on. Groups of businessmen being wined and dined, for example. And you can think of today's council as really a descendant of this system which was set up so many centuries ago. So, so much for what used to happen there. If you go today, then there is a whole suite of rooms that you can visit. And the most imposing of the whole lot is called the Salone dei Cinquecento. So, as the name implies, a room big enough for 500 people. It dates from the 15th century when it was decided that they really needed one huge meeting room for at least that number for meetings to be held. You had to be a citizen of over 30 to be allowed to come, be known to be an upstanding citizen, up to date with taxes, etc. And if you fulfilled all of that, you could come to the meeting. There will be benches for you to sit on, some of which you can still see there today. There would be a pulpit for all the speech makers. And when Duke Cosimo and family moved in in the 1540s, this room particularly was given a very lavish makeover and in fact a fancy new name. It became called the Sala Grande, so the Great Hall, a place where Duke Cosimo would be able to receive guests and foreign ambassadors and know that they would all be very impressed. And the decoration was carefully planned, all of it to send a message of some description. So, for example, round the walls were put pictures of the Medici ancestors. Duke Cosimo wanted people to know that he came from this illustrious family and was very proud of them. So there are all the people you'd expect. Cosimo de' Medici, um, Pope Leo X, who of course was a Medici, the first Duke of Florence, Alessandro, etc. And rather charmingly, they have little captions written underneath them and they're given pictorial symbols which are supposed to sort of tell you something about their personality. Bizarrely, for Duke Cosimo himself was chosen well, were chosen two things, a tortoise and a sail. The idea being that the tortoise would represent his wisdom and the sail would represent the idea that he was very fast, that he went at the speed of the wind. I don't see a politician today choosing a tortoise to represent them. So, so much for the ancestors. Then there were also paintings done for the walls of various places in Tuscany, there were four big paintings done to represent the areas of Florence, so one for Santo Spirito, Santa Croce, Santa Maria Novella and San Giovanni. There were pictures of other places that Florence had defeated in war, so Pisa and Siena, that sort of thing. And the ceiling is given over to a painting representing the final victory of Florence over Pisa in 1509, so this shows Florence seated on a chariot drawn by four white horses bedecked with flowers and with prisoners at her feet. All designed, I dare say, to mean that if any visitors arrived from Pisa at any point, they could feel suitably humiliated. The whole thing was overseen by Giorgio Vasari, who had been taken on as an architect, and there's written record of him reminding Duke Cosimo that he was very clear what his task was and using the following words, quote, Every day I draw for the great hall and facades so that it will reflect all your mastery. So the project did seem to be very much about massaging uh, Duke Cosimo's ego, but it certainly was about impressing visitors as well. And you can tell that from the rooms just along from the Sala Grande, which are known as the Quartiere delle Terrestri, which is really a suite of guest rooms. People who came from a distance would need to stay overnight and they would be housed in here with in massive four-poster beds decorated with lavish blue, gold and silver bed skirts, as they called them ornate little writing desks dotted about for them to study at. More paintings of more Medici on the walls. 
So I guess you felt very welcome and very looked after, and you also felt quite humble. Along a bit further, there were rooms dedicated to the most illustrious Medici ancestors, namely Cosimo, Lorenzo il Magnifico and Papa Leone, i.e. Pope Leo X, who of course was previously known as Giovanni de' Medici. The paintings in the room dedicated to Cosimo take you through episodes from his life, his exile and very triumphant return to the city, for example. There's reference made to the work he did on the building of the church San Lorenzo. And there's a big painting designed to remind you about his patronage of the arts. Cosimo was painted in the centre and he's surrounded by lots of important artists and literati of the day and piles of some of his collection of very rare books. All of that designed to link the name of Medici with the pursuit of knowledge. And then next door, in the room called Sala di Lorenzo il Magnifico, so the room dedicated to Lorenzo the Magnificent, there are more paintings celebrating his life. And the central one that you're most going to notice shows him receiving gifts from foreign ambassadors. And we're reminded that people came to pay homage to him from all over Italy, from Aragon, even from Cairo. And a chronicler writing at the time gives us a very nice list of some of the gifts that were sent to Lorenzo from the Sultan of Cairo. It reads like this, quote, Vases, jewels, parrots, monkeys, camels, and a giraffe, an Indian animal, never seen again, with a size and type of skin such that nothing similar came to Italy. The Sala di Papa Leone, so the room dedicated to Pope Leo X, very much reminds everybody that the Medici have been in the highest, most influential position in the church. So there's a painting in there of him being made Pope. He's sitting on a raised throne, two cardinals in red are standing either side of him and putting the papal crown on his head. And then there's an even bigger, more detailed painting next to that one called The Arrival of Leo X in Florence which is a reminder of the time in 1515 when Pope Leo decided to leave Rome and travel to Bologna and he made a point of coming through Florence, which was the town of his birth. I expect he enjoyed showing everyone he used to know how well he'd done. And the people of Florence were very pleased to welcome him. The Medici wouldn't have been very pleased to have this reminder that one of their number was now so influential. And they were so pleased, in fact, that a procession was organised, all of which is shown in the painting. So a whole line of cardinals and ambassadors and humanists wound their way right through the city to the Piazza della Signoria. There are many, many other rooms to visit and I'm going to miss quite a few of them out on the grounds that there's only so much information you can take in, either in the podcast or indeed when you're walking around the palace yourself. But I do want to have a quick look at the ducal apartments, which is the suite of rooms which Cosimo and his wife Eleonora themselves used when they moved in. So, as well as being a working palace and a symbol of the city and a place to remind all visitors how important Florence was and how important the Medici were, it was, of course, also a family home. By the time they left again, after the few years that they spent in this palace, Cosimo and Eleonora had no fewer than 11 children. I can't resist reading you the names. As so often you'll find that the names come round again in each generation. It's one of the things that makes following the history of the Medici rather confusing, actually. Anyway, their children rejoiced in the names of Maria, Francesco, Isabella and Giovanni. They're the oldest four. Then came Lucrezia, Pedrico, Garcia and Antonio, followed by Ferdinando, Anna and Pietro. Everybody, not least Eleonora herself, 
knew that really her primary function was to produce lots of healthy children. And it's not a coincidence then that her emblem um, was a lapwing with its wings extended to protect its young. And her Latin motto, cum pudore laeta fecunditas, reminds us, her, everybody, that in the use of that word fecunditas, linked of course to fecund in English, her 11 children proved what a good wife she was and made sure that the Medici succession was very secure. I found a description written by a chronicler at the time of who arrived when Cosimo and Eleonora moved in. And he gives a sense of the hustle and bustle that will have been caused by the arrival of all these people, writing that they brought, quote, the servants of the Lord Duke, Her Excellency's ladies-in-waiting and the wardrobe. I'm guessing the wardrobe wasn't one piece of wooden furniture. I'm guessing it was a massive collection of extremely fancy clothes and very likely um, a whole collection of people, ladies probably, to look after them. Eleonora had her own set of apartments in this section of the palace, one of which was called the Camera Verde or the Green Room. Called that because the walls are covered with landscapes and pictures of birds and animals, all designed to make you feel as if really you're in the countryside. This was the room from which she ran the palace. So she supervised the daily life of the children, servants, paid people wages, kept the books generally. And in fact, we also know that when Cosimo was away, she took over the running of the duchy. Eleonora was a very devout Catholic and she had included in her suite of rooms her very own private chapel. If you go in there, you can see a fresco on the wall which is called The Deposition of Christ and it's known that she used to spend many, many hours in there, often alone and often at prayer. Her secretary, Pier Francesco Riccio, leaves us a nice description of how she spent much of her time. Quote, The Duchess spends time on business, entertaining women who visit her, and in prayer, so I feel like I am in a cloister. Another room you really mustn't miss, I think perhaps for me it was my favourite in the in the whole of the Palazzo Vecchio, and that's the Cancelleria, or Chancellery. It's quite a small plain room actually, but the reason it fascinated me was because the most famous Chancellor in the days of the Republic of Florence was one Niccolò Machiavelli, so that room is actually his office. His official title was the first Chancellor of the Republic, so he was one of the most important figures in the government. You may already know that he's another person who was eventually exiled, and when he was forced to live outside of Florence, away from all the important business of the day, which he really rather liked organising, he turned to writing, and from the books that he wrote, we have many, many ideas on how to run a government, how to do well in politics, how to get the better of people all sorts of things. He's so fascinating that I'm going to devote the whole of the next episode to him, actually. So for the moment, um, let's just mention that you can stand in his office and look round, remember some of the things he wrote, and look at the bust of him, which is in a cupboard there. We know it's very realistic because it was actually made from a cast of his death mask. And there's also a portrait of him painted in about 1575 by Santi di Tito. So do have a look. And the last of the inside rooms that I want to mention is the Sala delle Carte Geografiche, or the map room in English. And this is a room which reflects Duke Cosimo's interest in how far knowledge had advanced in his time. It's full mainly of maps and also of other documents which show what was known at that time about the geography of the world. He himself wrote that what he wanted to achieve with this room was, quote, to put together once and for all 
all these things, both of heaven and of earth, absolutely exact and without errors. So it's a nice reminder of the fact that in that day, science and human knowledge generally was moving very fast and people at the top of society, like Duke Cosimo, really wanted to keep up to know what was being found and discovered and invented and to understand it. He was quite specific about what he wanted in there. He wanted maps of all the known world. So that would include Europe, Africa, Asia and the Americas. He wanted, quote, 48 celestial constellations to twinkle from the ceiling and all the plants and all the animals copied from nature according to the kinds that those countries produce. And on the walls there were to be pictures of the empress and princes of all those countries and 300 portraits of famous men from history. So it was really to be a collection of everything that could be found to do with current knowledge. It was a massively ambitious project which was left slightly unfinished after he died but is still an amazing collection to look at and to just understand how much was known and how much wasn't known in the 16th century because Florence at the time was a centre of intellect and inquiry I think you can be pretty sure that what was known in Florence was pretty much what was known. So that completes a quick Cook's tour of what I thought were the most interesting places inside the building but I really wouldn't like to finish without mentioning that tower that's such a dominant site when you're down in the square. It's called Arnolfo's Tower and it's 95 metres high which in itself is very significant because as you may remember a law had gone out about how high towers were allowed to be and it was less than half of that but I think for this building which was going to be the symbol of Florence and also the symbol of power and the powerful in the city an exception was made and 95 metres were permitted. It was built originally as a defensive structure, a good place to hide, a good place from which to see if anybody was coming anywhere near the palazzo. And then it was realised that it was also a good place to keep prisoners. I don't think a lot of people were imprisoned here, but if you had a particular prisoner that you really needed to keep a close eye on, think Cosimo de' Medici or Savonarola, then stashing them way up high in the watchtower was going to be a good and safe place to keep them away from anybody who might think about trying to rescue them. If you visit the watchtower, you can climb up the 223 steps to the top and on your way, you will actually pass the cell in which the two of them were held. It's actually known as the alberghetto, which is a funny word because I think an albergo means a hotel or a guest house. So I I think it's really saying this is a place in which to keep somebody, detain them. So if you pause on the stairs and have a look in there, you can remember the story about Cosimo de' Medici being in there, being too afraid to eat anything for fear that the prison guards would be trying to poison him and being rescued by a friendly warden who offered to share all his meals to prove that he was happy to eat them so they couldn't be poisoned and for which Cosimo was very grateful. When you get right up to the top, you'll find a parapet which you can walk all the way round, so that's a lovely place to get views of Florence. And you can see the bells, which have also been so much a part of the city for so long. In fact, there are three sets of bells up there, one of which is known as the Martinella, and that's the one that was always rung to assemble Florentines, call them to the square, whether because there was a parlamento and need to discuss something, or maybe there was a spectacle to watch, for example, the execution of the Patsy conspirators a crisis to tell people about, the invasion of the French, for example. On all those occasions, the Martinella would have been rung to summon everyone to the square to find out what was going on. 
So all in all, you really can think of the Palazzo Vecchio as a real symbol of the city. It's easily recognisable on so many postcards and pictures. It crops up time and time again over the centuries at many of the most momentous moments of history. And it's a museum of times past, telling you not just about the generations of the Medici family who lived there, so Duke Cosimo and his wife, but also because they wanted their ancestors remembered. It also tells you a lot more about earlier generations too. And right up to today, when it operates as the City Hall, it's presenting Florence to the outside world, presenting the best of Florence, if you like, to visitors and tourists like ourselves. Last but not least, it's a link between us and that very famous Florentine, Nicola Machiavelli, who in fact will be the subject of next week's episode. So I hope you've enjoyed what we've done today. I hope you'll join me next week. And it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Grazie. And to wish you goodbye. Arrivederci.